packed off a ring There is a crack, a crack in everything That's how the light gets in Welcome to the Thinking God Podcast, a weekly podcast where we talk to writers, speakers, pastors, artists, uh, and other folks who have an important voice in matters of faith and people who believe that there is still a valid reason for hope in the world in which we live. Today, I've got Brian McLaren, whom I first became aware of with his book, A Generous Orthodoxy, uh, which was on what, over 20 years ago. That book offered a broad spectrum, a big tent view of what it means to be a believer, uh, be a Christian. My takeaway from that book uh, was his insistence that all of those who claim to be a part of the universal church have an important part individually and that each tradition brings something exceptional to the table and something important to the table. Of course, that was not his first book. He's the author of more than 20 books, including his latest, The Great Spiritual Migration, how the world's largest religion is seeking a better way to be Christian. He is also an ardent advocate for social justice and likely one of the go-to sources on postmodernism in the church. He's an Auburn Seminary senior fellow, contributor to We Stand With Love and the leader of the Convergence Network, through which he is developing an innovative training mentoring program for pastors in the church and church planters. He is also a founding member of Red Letter Christians. And Brian McLaren and I began our conversation with his church history and how he became involved. And we had a slight technical glitch, but we'll pick up where he was talking about he had come through the Jesus movement and had begun work, working in a number of early small groups and Bible study groups that developed into his path that he eventually landed on. We started having a weekly dinner meeting or dinner, and then that turned into a little fellowship group and became another church. And um, so I had ended up stumbling into church planting a second time. And, uh, and that little group uh, grew and developed, I ended up leaving teaching to become a pastor. And I, I think because I had one foot in the world of secular higher education and then this other foot in the world of church and ministry, you know, I, I was in a good position. Uh, well, let me put it this way. I was in a position where I couldn't avoid having to deal with the kind of issues I, I wrote about. So in many ways, writing that book was therapy <laughs> for my uh, living in these two weird, weird worlds. Yeah, the Jesus movement was an interesting time. I kind of came out of that that same thing. We're about the same age. And um, who were some of the, the people who really have had the greatest influence on your life? Well, you know, there, there are a lot of people nobody would have heard of. There was a youth worker named Dave who took me under his wing, and there was a, a church planter named uh, Rod who took me under his wing. So many wonderful people were good to me. But in terms of um, kind of well-known people, this youth worker, uh, when I came to him with all kinds of questions, he gave me a book by C.S. Lewis and a book by Francis Schaeffer. And so in those years... Uh, you know, Francis Schaeffer and C.S. Lewis were the smartest Christians I'd come across. Um, you know, now I look back and, uh, you know, I would have quarrels with both of them, but I'm eternally grateful because they at least gave a young guy permission to think and ask questions. Right. Your approach to faith practices from sort of communal meetings to missions uh, to your approach to the Bible are marked, not so, are, are really marked uh, more by generosity than dogma. Uh, how has that approach sort of evolved and how has that affected you personally? Well, when you grow up fundamentalist, you see where dogma leads you, you know, to where people are willing to separate and split over every little issue. You also become sensitive to the ways that arguments about dogma are often a cover for uh, masculine ego turf wars, right? Right. <laughs> so, so men who are, are vying for power uh, actually use doctrine as their tool of power. I mean, you cannot avoid that if you grow up fundamentalist. And um, so I think, I, I think some of that gave me a, a suspicion and a distaste and maybe a kind of X-ray vision about a lot of doctrinal arguments. Uh, uh, and obviously, it's not that I don't care about what we, what we teach. I think what we teach is incredibly important. I, what, what we believe makes a huge difference in how we live. But uh, 
that suspicion was compounded when I was a pastor by the fact that I actually had to read the Bible, you know, (laughs) and uh, because I was preaching, you know, every a couple times every week. And actually reading the Bible messed me up. Uh, If I can give you just a quick example. Um, As a little boy growing up fundamentalist, I'd memorized a lot of verses. And uh, one of the verses I'd memorized was from uh, Isaiah. And it was about how our sins are as scarlet, but they could be white as snow. Um, And of course, you memorize that verse. Well, then I went and read the verses in front of it and after it and found out those verses were about that passage was about social justice, how we care for the poor and the widow and the orphan and the alien. And, you know, you start to have this feeling that your rigid biblical uh, education was a way of making you notice certain things and not notice or discount other things. And put those things together, it kind of forced me to rethink. Yeah, I, I know. I went to a couple, a couple of Southern Baptist seminaries, and the, the the teaching on Scripture was more how to defend it than to dig into what it really means. And, uh, That's right. And and what's strange is there's this hyper attention to to Scripture on one level, but on another level, it's remarkable how narrow the band of questions are. You know, like I remember the first time. You know, I'd been a pastor for ten or fifteen years before I noticed this. That if you get away from the King James Bible, which mistranslates the uh, Hebrew word, the Hebrew word Sheol as hell, you know, it, I remember noticing, I don't think the Old Testament ever refers to hell, you know. Well, that's incredibly obvious. But, man, I'd never noticed that. I'd been taught to kind of read hell into every, uh, the whole Old Testament. So things like that, you know, you, that you're, you just... One one of my mentors says, what we focus on determines what we miss. And so you're really disciplined to focus on certain things, which means you end up missing a lot. Yeah, and I have have had conversations with people who seem to be better acquainted with the Chicago Council on Inerrancy than they are with Jesus. (laughs) Uh, Well, the the way that we avoid the Gospels, that's another whole story, right? I don't want to get away from hell there for a second. Um, You were one of a small chorus of voices sort of stood up for Rob Bell when he wrote Love Wins. Um, and I know you writ- you have written about this as well, but um, do you believe in a literal hell? And why has the church had such a hell fetish for so many years? Yeah, um, I, I do not believe in a literal hell. I'm not actually sure that anybody actually believes in a literal hell. I think everybody has their own sort of ways of nuancing that. Um, uh, but uh, I, what what becomes interesting to me, well, m- maybe I could say it this way, Greg, um, uh, there's a great Catholic uh, philosopher uh, named John Caputo, and John defines deconstruction. He says deconstruction isn't destruction. It's the loving telling of the story of something. In other words, we have an idea that we think is fully formed and descended from heaven, but then we found out there's, there's a history to that, that idea. It developed and evolved over time. And what became interesting to me was to go back and see the evolution of the idea of hell First, it, I was interested in the Bible, but then that takes you outside the Bible to see, for example, where the Assyrian idea of hell, uh, what, what that was like, and what the Egyptian idea of hells were like. And then, you know, it's sort of a strange obsession, but once you get onto some of these trails, you can't help but follow them. Uh, you know, you find that there's Buddhist conceptions of hell, in Theravada Buddhism especially. And so, you know, you start to realize, oh, this is an idea that has social utility. And I think... The social utility of beliefs or ideas is something that we should pay a lot more attention to. If you are an authority figure uh, and you can threaten people with physical torture, you have an awful lot of power. But if you can threaten them with eternal conscious, ex- you know, almost infinite torture, not much more power than that you can ever grab for than that. And that's one of the reasons why I think hell has had so much power. In, in Christian history, a sad kind of power. Well, and it still does. I mean, if you, I know in, in our area here, matter of fact, uh, the town I live in, it, it, they do a lot of great things, and it's a great church. Uh, it's a, one of the top two largest churches in the country out of a little small place like this. But there's a tremendous focus on hell. Uh, yeah. And, um, well, and the fact is, this is, you know, the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, reformed a lot of things. But one thing it did not reform was the idea of hell that it had evolved to kind of monumental proportions during the Middle Ages. Um, and 
yeah, I mean, they're, they're just things you start to notice once you raise these questions. You notice, for example, that uh, the Gospel of John doesn't talk about hell, that, uh, that the Book of Romans doesn't talk about hell. What, what happens is we get used to importing all kinds of ideas from other places around certain words. But uh, So then you ask, what's the history of hell becoming such a huge preoccupation? And, uh, uh, and it, it has its own unique history in American revivalism. You know, when you think about it, American revivalism wasn't really about evangelism. It was about kind of shocking and waking up nominal Christians. Since almost everybody in America came from either a Protestant or a Catholic background, you know, these preachers would go into town. They, the people already, in a sense, agreed with them, uh, but they just weren't living like they did. So they would, you could see how stoking up the fires of hell would make for a really uh, intense sermon and, and maybe could get through to some people. So we've got all that kind of history. Yeah, good short-term motivator. I, you know, you mentioned uh, the when you were uh, memorizing Scripture early, if you take the only probably uh, lake of fire reference to Jesus, it's, it's, it's part of a passage on, again, social justice. <laughs> you, are you, oh, my gosh. This is what really, you know, um, I, I've never actually talked to Rob Bell about this, but I know Rob read my book, The Last Word and the Word After That, uh, before he wrote um, uh, Love Wins. And um, uh, and I, I grapple with this in this book called uh, The Last Word and the Word After That. And part of my work for that book was I just took every reference to hell in the whole Bible. And, and I actually put them in a chart and everything else. So the, here's the irony. Even among the, the people who preach about hell the most, the irony is, they preach about hell as the consequence of not believing the right doctrine of atonement or not saying the sinner's prayer or, you know, any number of things. But if you go and ask, you know, what sends people to hell, and just in a very literalistic way in the Gospels, being rich sends people to hell, <laughs> being unmerciful sends people to hell. You know, fascinating uh, what actually sends people to hell there. You mentioned uh, deconstructionalism, and that's been a real discussion point from a lot of people. I talked to Pete Enns about it a little bit. Um, is there a danger of getting too far down the road of deconstruction? I know you just gave Caputo's definition of it, because a lot of people that I've talked to who've reached uh, our stage of life, who may have grown up in church and are now beginning to think about these things for the first time, are hitting places like, well, how far do I go in this? Yeah, yeah. So um, let me say, Greg, I remember early on in this process, in fact, the book I, I have coming out in a few days, uh, uh, The Great Spiritual Migration, I try to tell some of the story of my own struggles with this. And there is a feeling of terror, you know, that, that if I ask this question, it could lead to that question. And if I ask that question, it could lead to another question, and I won't have anything left at all. And that is... Here's the irony. That is terrifying. And I don't recommend that for people who don't need to do it. But if, if you're one of those people who has an honest curiosity, there are consequences to asking difficult questions, but there are also consequences to suppressing difficult questions. And here's the irony. If you're willing to wade into the unknown with faith, you know, uh, with faith that that you actually could be guided to some some truth, maybe inconvenient truth, maybe truth that comes with some cost. That's a pretty remarkable kind of faith to have, I think. That you know, it, in in a way, I, I remember praying this many times. You know, if you're the kind of God who doesn't want me to be honest, I've got some problems. But it, you must be the kind of God who gave me a mind who wants me to use it. I shouldn't be afraid to use it. Uh, but having said that, uh, I think. Um, here's the problem. Any muscle that we exercise, uh, we can end up over-depending on it. And there's a kind of, some people call it the hermeneutic of suspicion, um, that I think is very necessary. Other people call it critical thinking. I think it's very necessary. It's not the only kind of thinking. There's also moral thinking or ethical thinking and, you know, any number of other uh, kinds of thinking. And uh, so I, I think you're right. I think people can be, it can become their only tool in the toolbox and, uh, and it can actually maybe uh, hurt them if they don't remember they have some other tools. Ironically, if they would be 
if they would have a hermeneutic of suspicion about the hermeneutic of suspicion, <laughs> um, they would be open, you know, to, to, they, they wouldn't allow themselves to be boxed in. Well, you have a chapter that sort of deals with this in your new book, uh, The Great Spiritual Migration, um, about how people approach the Bible uh, and, and the significance and role of the Bible as people begin to grow. Uh, how, 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 how would you describe that chapter if people hadn't seen the book yet? Sure. Well, what what I suggest, you know, I was brought up being told there were only two ways to read the Bible, our way and the wrong way. And our way was conservative. Their way was liberal. And uh, and the first thing I'd say to anyone who's conservative is please understand that the people in your community are who who cannot stand, quote, liberals are not the best people to give you an accurate understanding of liberals. Um uh, and frankly, probably l- l- theological liberals are very impressed with themselves and they won't see their own weaknesses so well. But, you know, th- the point is you don't don't accept the stereotype of either conservatives or liberals. I think that's important. Um, and so what I try to do in the book is I say I, I lay out a little matrix and um, uh, and I say it's not a choice between just conservative and liberal as if those were two watertight categories. But some of us read the Bible more literally, meaning we read it like a science textbook or, or a, a phone book or an a, a, a engineering manual. Um, and other, as others of us read it more literarily, meaning we understand it as that it has poetry and that it uses imagery and that it uses all the craft and complexity of storytelling. And, um, and the fact is a lot of people sort of jump back and forth on that spectrum between literal and literary. Uh, but when you read with a literary lens, it's not that you're saying this is true or false. You're, you're actually looking for something else. You're looking for meaning. And uh, uh, looking for factuality and looking for meaning, those are two very different things. Um, and then I suggest there's a kind of vertical axis as well. And I see that as an axis that goes from, uh, from an, uh, uh, an innocent reading meaning a reading where we don't ask any questions, to a critical kind of middle zone. That's where we ask a whole lot of questions and especially engage in analysis, which means tearing things apart. And, and it's that hermeneutic of suspicion in many ways. But then I suggest there, at the top of that spectrum, there's a post-critical way of reading where after you've torn things apart, you try to put them back together again. And, uh, and so that, allow, that gives us a variety. It helps us see a variety of approaches to the Bible without just dumping it into the good and bad category. And, and frankly, I think what a lot of us who were, who were brought up with a very literal and innocent way of reading the Bible, uh, we simply can't stay there our whole lives. Part of growing up forces us to ask more and more questions, and we're going to migrate to a literary and critical or post-critical way of reading the Bible. Yeah, I think that's important what you said, uh, what it says and what it means. Those of us who did grow up with the tradition like you're talking about, and I, and I share that tradition, um, you reach a point where you know what it says all the way through. I mean, you, you know what it says. Yeah. But the idea of somebody saying, what does it mean? Um, yeah. You spend so much time, we, we mentioned this when we were talking about defending it. Uh, I actually interviewed a couple of pastors who were on the board of a religious college who were explaining to me how there were dinosaurs on the ark. Yeah. And I, I just was baffled first by the concept, but their their explanation was that they were miniaturized. Oh, so gosh. they had gone so far down the road of having yes. to be convinced that everything was there that, you know, the, yes. the, the, the meaning of the story was pretty much lost. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. And, and of course, that story uh, is so incredibly interesting and troublesome. You know, it's funny we tell that as a story for children uh, about fuzzy animals on a boat when, you know, on <laughs> one level, it's a story not just about genocide. It's a story about uh, geocide, you know, the destruction of the earth and talk about innocent people being swept away and so on. So it's a highly complex story. And it's a story that benefits greatly from critical and then post-critical reading. In fact, uh, I was just thinking about this the other day um, because here we are in a position ironically, where we, we have this problem of uh, global climate change, global warming that relates to the use of fossil fuels that could, you know, we've just, we've had, I think, 11 months in a row of record-breaking heat. Uh, and 
we could melt our ice caps and be dealing with a flood again. And the irony, even though I think there are all kinds of ethical problems with that story of the flood, it's a story that tells us there are certain limits that if you go beyond them, and interestingly in the, in the Noah story, the limit is the limit of violence. There are certain limits that if you go beyond them, consequences will come that are absolutely catastrophic. Well, the, you know, even though uh, I, I've rethought a lot of things, I think there's a lot of meaning in that. <laughs> it's worth paying attention to. Yeah, and I think that the idea of the, the, the stories and, and the meaning behind stories, we, we almost start with our children trying to teach them the meaning behind them and then somewhere lose that uh, thread as yes. they grow older. Gosh, you remember the story of Hansel and Gretel going into the forest with the, <laughs> you know, breadcrumbs and all the rest. Right. Um, you know, boy, that's a meaningful story for kids. It creates all kinds of tensions and questions and and so on. Uh, and you know, we don't make it sound like that story is worthless unless it actually happened, right? Uh, you know, we don't we don't have to say, do wolves really dress up as grandmothers and hide and you know that, that sort of thing. Well, one of the themes of the books of yours I've read, I think I've read four of your books, I was looking through the list, uh, is this idea, and we're talking about that now, is continually growing, finding newness, freshness, and and all that we do as as believers. Um, How is the challenge of a church so steeped in tradition and dogma to be encouraged to continue to grow and embrace fresh ideas? I know you meet with pastors a lot and church people looking for church growth. Yeah. How do we encourage them to kind of break out of that mold? Because I know a lot of them, they feel like their job is threatened if they do. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. You asked me about people who had an influence on me, and I mentioned, mentioned Francis Schaeffer and C.S. Lewis. And so I was, a, you know, from a fundamentalist, uh, conservative evangelical background, and uh, and someone defined for me the difference between a fundamentalist and a conservative evangelical is is a matter of whether you uh, secretly drink beer and go to movies or whether you do it in public. But um, uh, but uh, see, Francis Schaeffer represented to me a fundamentalist Christian who was kind to people and who accepted people he disagreed with and who was interested in philosophy and art and who actually drank beer in public. And what, what he provided for me was permission to grow within my context as a fundamentalist, conservative, evangelical. Um, C.S. Lewis took it even farther because C.S. Lewis couldn't be described as a fundamentalist, even though many fundamentalists have tried to sort of pretend that he's mm-hmm. one, of, one of their own. But C.S. Lewis, in a sense, opened me up to this larger idea of mere Christianity. So in many ways, my book, Generous Orthodoxy, is a footnote to C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Um, and uh, what I, here's what I found. My version of fundamentalism that I inherited did not give me opportunity to grow. But the Christian faith in its broadest and deepest sense did. And I think this is where uh, I, I, one of the invitations I hope that you know, I'm able to give through my books and whatever to people is to say, your little congregation, your little denomination – your little family system, because often these are matters of grandpa or uncle, so-and-so, whatever, may not give you room to grow, but, but the Christian faith actually gives you a lot more room than they are letting on. <laughs> and, um, and, and that's especially true because the Christian faith itself is continuing to grow, and that's something I, you know, I, I hope people can understand. Well, my role model in that was G.K. Chesterton, who yes. you know who was really C.S. Lewis's hero, I guess, in yes. many ways. And his best friend was George Bernard Shaw. I mean, that always impressed me that the, their, the most intimate friends were complete philosophical opposites on a lot of things. Yes, well and, said. Yeah, uh, it, it didn't. How how do the pastors you meet with, um, and even your students in seminary? How are they able to digest these these ideas and this approach? Are they are they warm to it? Are they afraid? Because I know I do. Like I said, I've known pastors who are beginning this journey after being a pastor for twenty five years, and they're worried if I get up and talk about this, I'm going to have to find another job. Yeah. So the the, the truth is, let's see. I've been at this for quite a while now, um, probably eighteen uh, eighteen years. Uh, I've been sort of in this territory as a writer, and. Uh, a whole lot of people have had to leave their job. Uh, uh, and, you know, there's an awful lot of short-term pain in that. Uh, I did a book tour back in 2007 for a book I wrote called Everything Must Change, and I, I, I lost count of how many people came up to me and said, 
this is the first time I've been in a church in five years, first time I've been in a church in seven years. And then the next sentence would be, I was a Southern Baptist pastor. I was an Assemblies of God pastor, you know, and they just totally left the church entirely. But uh, what's happening now, I think, is that we're reaching a tipping point where there are enough people who are in the same place that what we need is a kind of massive reorganization. That's part of what I'm hinting at with this term migration, that enough people have moved that I think there will be more and more opportunities for those kinds of pastors who, uh, who are ready. It, it, it might mean they have to take, take some risks, you know. But if they're looking for people who want to be guided into a more spacious uh, and open-hearted way of following Christ, there'll be a lot of those people out there. Now, am I right in assuming you're pretty hopeful this can happen? It is happening? Well, I know it's happening. Uh, I know it's happening. And uh, I, and I, my feeling is you can't put the genie back into the bottle. You can't get the horses back into the barn, you know, the, to use those images. But um, uh, but here's my great concern, and here's where I I do not feel it's inevitable. Um, I think the... Well, look, as, a, as a, a, a Protestant, let me use a Catholic example. Um, I think Pope Francis has, represents an awful lot of hope for an awful lot of uh, more open-minded, forward-leaning Catholics, right? Um, and people could say, oh, good, the Catholic Church is on a path of, uh, of opening up. Maybe they're going to uh, drop their, you know, the stigma against uh, divorced people and, and uh, LGBTQ people, and maybe they'll even get to a point where they allow women uh, e- equality in church leadership and so on. And, and that could be. I do not think it's a done deal. It could be that after Pope Francis, the most conservative pope in you know centuries uh, uh, is elevated to the papal throne, so to speak, and the whole thing could could you know regress for four hundred years. And so I don't think any of this is inevitable. I think all of us play a part in, in what uh, Christian faith is going to become. But the good news is a lot of us are ready to do that. And even more good news, I know for a fact there are you know, Muslims who want to help Islam move in a more positive direction and Jews who want to help Judaism and Hindus who want to help Hinduism. And that I can't help but believe is the wind of the spirit blowing across all of our different traditions, inviting us uh, in a healthier direction? You include a lot of discussion about other faith traditions in, in much of your writing. Uh, how does that fit into sort of a missional goal? Well, um, you know, this is one of the problems with that word missional. I think uh, people, uh, uh, people like uh, Leslie Newbegin and David Bosch, who were early uh, users of that term had one understanding. And then unfortunately, I think uh, evangelicals especially have gotten a hold of the term. And uh, I think they have very often wanted a missional methodology, but not, they haven't grappled very deeply with a truly missional theology. And the core concept of missional theology is that God is for the world, meaning God has a mission in creation. Um, not just a mission for the church, but a, a God actually is committed to the world. This is actually a concept that's deeply embedded in Eastern Orthodoxy. Eastern Orthodox theology tradition, traditionally has taught that in the incarnation, uh, the meaning of the incarnation is that God is uh, embedded in, in, the, in, in the physical universe of space and time and soil and water and air uh, and human bodies. Um, and missional theology similarly says God is committed to the world. Uh, that is very different than saying God hates the world, can't wait to burn it up and throw it into hell and destroy it with fervent heat and get rid of it forever so he can just take the souls of the pure, purified and enjoy you know, their elite company in, in a, a country club uh, in the sky. Very different um, uh, understanding. And uh, if you have a missional theology, if you believe that God is committed to the earth, then instead of looking at other religions as places uh, that are totally, uh, you know, wrong and damned, and and that the only place where God's light is shining is in the church, you say, no, the Spirit's at work in all of creation. I love that verse in in Genesis 1, 
where the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, which suggests to me that the Spirit of God is active in creation before there are any religions and even before there are any people. And uh, if that's the case, we would expect everybody is encountering uh, the Spirit of God. Yeah, it, it seems there has been a, a, a tendency to want to start uh, theology of God at Genesis 3. Uh, yeah, you're exactly to, right. You know, it's uh, the, the, the goodness part gets lost in all of that. This is one of the things that's being, you know, appraised afresh and, and desperately needs to be. And it's uh, there are Catholic theologians like James Allison who wrote an amazing book called The Joy of Being Wrong, which is a reappraisal of that whole question. My friend Danielle Schroyer is writing a book on this right now. I think it's called Original Blessing or Original Gift or something. And and uh, anyhow, important reappraisals of, of that going on now. And a lot of this this freshness and growth and newness uh, – you seem to suggest in some of your books, I know in uh, We Make the Road by Walking, uh, that community is an essential part in, of this process and growth and change. Well, th- this is, you know, this is one of the moves from a modern to a postmodern world. In the modern world, uh, and some would say it even goes farther back, it's part of the whole, what, what Carl Jasper's called the axial age. But we, we were very individualistic. Everything depended on my individual uh, uh, thought patterns. Um, and now we're realizing, no, we are deeply formed in community. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's inescapable. We're deeply formed in community. And in fact, this is part of the complexity of life. We all are members of multiple communities that are often trying to form us in different ways. And this adds depth to the meaning of what, uh, to, to what it means to call, uh, oneself a follower of Christ. It's saying, I actually want my primary formation to come through the, the, the teaching of Christ, the life of Christ, the spirit of Christ in a community of other people who are seeking the same thing. It's, it, so, yes, it, it's, it's deeply important. It's very conflicted right now, in my opinion, Greg, because, um, because our uh, faith communities have been caught in this polarization between liberal and conservative, and because in many ways they've been paralyzed by that polarization, they haven't been able to adapt to uh, the realities around us, which makes it harder and harder for people to find any safe haven and any place to belong in so many of our faith communities. You know, it's a big part of what I hope my new book and my other work will do is uh, promote that kind of uh, a change because we we need it uh, urgently. Well, and it seems to have been co-opted into the political process too. I, I don't know how political you are, but this is certainly the strangest uh, election cycle in our lifetime. There's and, so much going on with this election cycle. Let me just give. Could I just just give a quick example where absolutely. there's a presence from my book? So the middle third of Great Spiritual Migration is making the the proposal that we uh, we need to. To, to rethink our very understanding of God and that uh, our conventional understandings of God uh, include violence as part of the nature of God, the desire, in fact, the, the requirement to harm people and make them suffer is inherent in, in, what, in God. And, and uh, I, I, I'm challenging that, challenging that very directly uh, in the middle third of the book. It's something I feel passionately about. I know it's scary to a lot of people, but the, uh, the alternative is even scarier, I think. Uh, but here's the irony. What, one way to describe that idea that God is violent is to say that, uh, that, that uh, in our history, we had a patriarchal view of God and a patriarchal view of the universe. That's not to say just that God is Father. It's to say a specific thing. God is a powerful male figure who dominates and rules by the threat of violence. If you want to define patriarchy, there it is, that we achieve peace by submitting to the domination of a powerful male who rules with the threat of violence. Um, Well, isn't it ironic in this election, uh, who could represent that kind of threatening patriarchy, uh, unaccountable power, better than a billionaire named Donald Trump? I mean, he is just... Uh, the ideal representation of that kind of patriarchy. And uh, isn't it interesting that the alternative, as flawed as people will say that Hillary is, 
she's not a patriarch, you know. So uh, uh, fascinating that we're playing out these dramas right in our political lives. Yeah, nothing new under the sun. But, you know, that the other thing about it, you're talking about that, that patriarchal view of God uh, is also a view that, of, of a God who seems kind of needy. Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, a lot of us have been challenging conventional atonement theories. And one of one of the things that always bothered me when I used to fervently proclaim penal substitutionary atonement theory as the essence of the gospel, uh, as I, that's what I was taught, um, is that it makes God not be in control of God's self. In other words, God has this uncontrollable need to punish. Uh, and, and, and ironically, uh, uh, in fact, I remember being in a meeting with Dallas Willard when Dallas rocked my world by, you know, because he had evangelical credentials. But he said, uh, he said, in a way, that atonement theory means that God never actually forgives anybody. <laughs> it, God just diverts the punishment that doesn't actually forgive. And in this same vein, we're talking about you. You have uh, you and I were talking before we went on the air uh, that you're a musician, and I know uh, I read something earlier this year that you said it's time to rewrite all the pro-war hymns as well. Yeah. So, um, th- yeah, th- you know, this, I, 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 I'm not much of an absolutist, you know, but I just think we are at a time when uh, with militarized Islamic terrorism and militarized, let's call it Christian counterterrorism, are the greatest threats to human civilization. Uh, and And the fact is, the militarized Christian counterterrorism is far more powerful. And depending on who's got their finger on the button, another reason this presidential election is so significant, uh, you know, we, we, we are a, a great threat. Um, in, in, the, uh, in the book, I, I, a sentence that I labored over a great deal, I said, I'm worried about something more than Christianity dying. I'm worried about Christianity killing, uh, being an agent of, uh, of genocide. And uh, so uh, all the subtle ways that we preserve conquest, uh, colonization, domination language, I feel it's, it's dangerous. I also feel it subverts the life and teaching of Jesus. Because when you look at the crucifixion as, as in a sense, a divine repudiation of violence as a mean of, means of solve, solving a problem, in, in a way it's saying, that God would rather suffer than make other people suffer. That's pretty remarkable, and we subvert that in an awful lot of ways. And it could be one of the reasons, and I'm not going to quote all the numbers here, but there have been a number of significant polls both in Western Europe and the United States states that suggest that uh, a very sizable number of particular millennials see faith of any kind as totally irrelevant. They just see it as irrelevant entirely. Why bother at all? Yeah, and, and this is where we... Uh, got a real problem in how we define the word faith, because what faith means to a lot of people is a system of beliefs. It means, in the end, a list of beliefs that you have to accept with or without evidence, and in fact, very often against all evidence. Uh, And uh, I I find that increasingly hard definition of faith uh, to sign up for myself. Um, But uh, as I'm willing to question uh, defining faith as a list of beliefs, something deeper emerges in my understanding of faith. And faith has a lot more to do with things like courage and confidence and willingness to risk. And, uh, and it has a lot more to do with a way of life that, that I'm willing to say, I will live my life based on love uh, rather than greed. I'll live my life based on service and compassion rather than conquest and domination. And if I'm that faith is my willingness to risk my life on that kind of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of arc or, or that kind of uh, direction for my life. And uh, that's, uh, you know, some people think, oh, you're just watering things down. I, I actually think it's way more demanding, you know, because mm-hmm. the fact is you can sign off on those lists of beliefs and still be a racist or a bigot or a uh, chauvinist or whatever. And, you know, you're, you're just fine because you have the right beliefs. And, and it also offers the opportunity to create community that uh, can sort of borrow from the 12 steps where the idea is attraction, not promotion. You don't have to oh, promote gosh. everything. 
You know, that's so true. And here's something that's just fascinating to me because, you know, I, I, for these last 20 years, I've been doing a lot of traveling and speaking, especially the last 10 years. I get into an awful lot of churches and I get with an awful lot of pastors and the number of pastors who, and these often are in very conservative evangelical churches. They'll tell me something like this. I don't talk about this much, but, uh, we have uh, three families in our church where the husband or the wife is Jewish or Muslim or Buddhist, and they come to the church, and they're really a vital part of the church, and they don't believe in Jesus, but we really have welcomed them into our family, you know, and we don't treat them like second-class citizens, and they really make a contribution. It's just fascinating to watch that their practice of inclusion uh, has taken them farther than necessarily their doctrinal statement or their book of discipline would allow them to do, you know. Right. And, and again, that's back to the idea of, of pastors taking the risk of doing something new and fresh and trying to understand uh, their their idea of faith in new ways. It, it's right. And it's where their congregation is teaching them. And that was sure my experience. A lot of my most important lessons came because my congregation refused to cooperate with my <laughs> my assumptions. And so I had to learn from them. Now, are, are we still using the phrase emerging church? That seems to have sort of dimmed um, a little. You know, uh, I, I, if people want to use it, I think that's fine. I, 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 uh, yeah, my feeling at this point, my, my frustration with, uh, with the term was always that there was such a marketing mentality, especially in the evangelical world. Mm -hmm. Here's the new hot thing. <laughs> and I never felt that what we were dealing with was the new hot, you know, thirty nine ninety five. buy it in a box, program to solve all your problems. I, that's why I always talked about a conversation and, and so on. Um, but, you know, the, I think the basic issues we were talking about certainly haven't gone away. And, uh, and so, so some folks like to use it, others don't. Well, one of, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the Thinking God podcast is you are uh, someone who over a couple of decades has written a lot of books that raise a lot of questions, but you're also somebody who has a serious devotion to God and the scriptures and living it out. Um, how how can we, and we've, we've sort of touched on this several times, but it keep, come, keeps coming back to, how do we begin to give people permission to to do this this sort of thing, Brian? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, let me be very autobiographical first and say the fact that I was a pastor when I went through my own struggles in this, that made it harder in some ways, but in other ways it kept me in the community. And by keeping me in the community, it also kept me in spiritual practices. And I think that there are essential spiritual practices that, turn out to be more important than our system of beliefs. If you only have a system of beliefs and no spirituality, then when one when the system falls, you have nothing left. Uh, but if you have some of those practices, you actually find out that they were more important all along than the system. And if you're in a community, especially if you're in a community where it's safe, uh, then you also have other people who can uphold you and help you. Um, and this is why, so a couple of things I would recommend for people is if they're part of a community that is harmful, you know, that won't let them ask questions, that won't let them be honest, it might be too traumatic to drop out of that congregation. Although sometimes they, people would be surprised that just up the road or just across the street or just uptown, there's another church where they would find a huge amount of relief, you know. Um, uh, but if, if they can't do that, they need to find a couple of friends uh, who they're safe with in private. And, uh, uh, and without that, I wouldn't embark on the journey till I found a few of those friends. And if, if people are really desperate and they don't know how to find some of those friends, that's why people often will look online and find a conference that's coming up and they'll go to that conference and that, that'll be the place. You know, uh, people come where places where I'm speaking and seeing me isn't the important thing. They get to meet some people from their town who it's, they can have coffee with. That's incredibly important, I think, as we move forward. Well, you were mentioning spiritual practices. What are some of those spiritual practices? Well, for me, one of the ones that was most important through most of my life was journaling. I, I have to be honest, when I became a professional writer, where journaling was, where writing was my job, it, it, uh, journaling is still important to me, but it's not the same as it was before. <laughs> 
Um, another one is what I would, some people call it spiritual direction. I would call it spiritual friendship. But where you have people where it is, where the default is honesty and you are, the people are committed to you no matter what. And uh, that's incredibly important. Um, I was up at uh, six this morning uh, to have a uh, Skype conversation with a young pastor on the other side of the world who's just gone through some horrible things and he needed a friend to talk to, you know. Um, so that, that kind of spiritual friendship, I think, is, is phenomenally important. For me, another one is solitude and silence because, uh, because especially, uh, you know, as a pastor or a public figure, um, so much of your life is sucked into uh, negotiating relationships. And, and sometimes the relationship with God becomes almost subsidiary to these other relationships. So that's where, for me, there's been no substitute for solitude and silence where I'm just, I'm just exposing my heart to God and not anybody else. So those would be some of the ones that have been key to me. I'd also say giving has been an important one because the power of money is more subtle than a lot of people realize. And the, the practice of, of generosity, you know, that I think is a pretty important discipline to protect ourselves uh, from, from uh, greed. And, and talking about that, do you, uh, you know, we're from similar traditions where your tithing was supposed to be your giving. Yeah. Um, what What is a, a new or a fresher pro- approach to that? Well, um, you know, I, I wish that everybody was part of a church that they were so excited about that the church became like a mutual fund where they could give to the church and then, you know, join with others in giving to things that matter. I know for some people, I, I just had someone uh, yesterday in a phone call who is a full-time, you know, uh, clergy said to me she just left her church and left her denomination, and she said, I just felt it was a money pit. This, these were her exact words. In other words, all the money that was going in was just keeping a building going that the congregation had dwindled and didn't even need anymore. And You know, so I understand people have those frustrations, but... What I would say is, you, you know, we were talking before about about pastors and others who are trying to pioneer into some new territory. Man, find one of them and support them because they're desperately needed and almost always desperately underfunded. Well, when this podcast runs, your book will be out, uh, The Great Spiritual Migration. Uh, have you decided what your next book is going to cover? <laughs> I, I have not decided. Um, uh and in some ways, I want to let this one settle a little bit. But uh, I'll tell you something I'm thinking about and I've talked to my publisher about um, would be a, a book that was incredibly different. And, of course, publishers very often don't want to have their authors jump into something very different. But uh, I've had a lifelong love for the outdoors and for nature. And I, I want to write a book of theology based on animals. In other words, what if animals were... Uh, or what could we learn about the creator through that dimension of creation? So my tentative title is God of the Animals, but we'll see if oh. uh, see see how that develops over the next couple of years. Well, I've got to tell you, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope everybody else did too. And uh, I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate the voice. Well, thanks. And can I just say, people like you who are creating podcasts like this are are doing exactly what we were just talking about. You're creating a really needed space where people can take a deep breath and think and not be afraid. You know, it's like a, a secret meeting of people to, uh, to speak and think freely. So keep up the good work. Great. Thanks, Brian. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation again, that I, as I just told Brian, but I found out later uh, what a pastor's heart this man has. And I've had several people that I've talked to off the air that have talked about Brian reaching out to them in times of crisis. He's been a real, a um, person who really just cared about him, took him in, helped him out. And um, I know that uh, he, he definitely has a heart for people around the world trying to spread this message and this, this good news. And again, his new book is called The Great Spiritual Migration, How the World's Largest Religion is Seeking a Better Way to Be Christian. Of course, you can get it at Amazon, any of the regular sites. You can also find Brian online at his site, brianmclaren.net. And you can find out more about him and his ministry and all the things he's involved in. Well, next week, I've got Jay Baker coming to talk about what's going on in his life and his latest uh, 
adventures in ministry and it's going on a, a fascinating conversation i think you'll enjoy it jay baker is is a very authentic and amazing person so if you'll tune in next week for the thinking god podcast and as always i would appreciate it if you could share this podcast with anyone you think might find it interesting and or enlightening engaging any of the things above it's, it's on itunes google play it's on podbean and you can find it on uh, the thinkinggod.com website as well and remember in the words of the great gk chesterton the riddles of god are more satisfying than the solutions of man you gotta let the soul shine just like my daddy used to say Again, PDN's latest book is The Sin of Certainty. Go out and get a copy and also suggest reading The Bible Tells Me So. All of his books are available at Amazon, and he has a page there just of his books. He's written Bible commentaries, as we mentioned. You can also visit PeteNs.com, where you can read his daily blog and other thoughts and find out more about speaking engagements that PeteNs is up to. Well, that's it for this week, our first edition of Thinking God podcast. Next week, we have another great guest when Brian McLaren joins us. So I hope you will join us for that. Until then, if you have any questions, send us an email at podcast at thinkinggod.com. Check us out on Facebook or check our website out, thinkinggod.com. It will develop and add more information as we go along here. See you next week.